What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is used with permission of the Columbia University Press. Hi, I'm Ethan Warren, and you're listening to Pod Thomas Anderson, a nine-part miniseries on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions. Every week I'm bringing you excerpts from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, now available wherever you order your books, as well as insights on Anderson and his work from critics, podcasters, actors, and more. This week I'll be discussing Anderson's third feature, Magnolia, with guests Paul Rust, Ella Kemp, and Dylan Galula. All book excerpts are used with permission of Columbia University Press. No is the saddest experience you'll ever know. Yes, Paul Thomas Anderson was presented with a rare privilege on his third film, Final Cut. It's a term that refers to the contractual stipulation that the director's cut of the film will be honored and distributed by the studio without any mandated changes. Thus, while New Line Cinema made requests and suggestions on Anderson's interpersonal epic Magnolia, particularly when it came to a patience-straining 188-minute runtime, the choice was Anderson's alone, and his choice was most often to stick with his instinct. If Boogie Nights was a deliberately grandiose vision, Magnolia was even more self-consciously conceived as a once-in-a-career free-for-all of narrative indulgence. Equating creative autonomy with quality, Anderson would describe Magnolia as, quote, unquestionably the best film I will ever make, end quote, a perspective that has certainly not been shared by either critical or audience consensus. In That Moment, Magnolia Diary, a feature-length behind-the-scenes reel included on the film's DVD release, Anderson can be heard telling his crew, quote, we shouldn't be afraid to want to make a great movie, end quote. The fact that this perspective should be framed as one of defiance testifies to the distrust Anderson felt toward an industry willing to defer to popular taste at the expense of directorial vision. Magnolia is a film low on plot but overstuffed with story. Set over the course of one day in the San Fernando Valley, the story follows, by a conservative count, nine principal characters, all of whom are united by their association with network TV magnate Earl Partridge, played by Jason Robards, who's dying of cancer at the film's outset. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back, 
in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spector. There is the story of a boy genius. Willa Catherine, Thomas Kidd, Jean-Baptiste Poclamoyer. And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Béjar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Kidd, Donnie Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him, did you understand? There's right. no one else. No one else. The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. Love you too. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82. And this will all make sense in the end. Earl is attended to by Phil, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the hospice nurse who picks up the slack left by Earl's wife, Linda, played by Julianne Moore, who is spiraling in the grip of pharmaceutical addiction as she struggles with her guilt over years of infidelity. Much of Phil's day is spent locating Earl's estranged son, the radical misogynist motivational speaker Frank T.J. Mackey, played by Tom Cruise, and luring the reluctant young man to his father's home for a deathbed reconciliation. Meanwhile, Jimmy Gator, played by Philip Baker Hall, host of a tentpole of Earl's production company, the game show What Do Kids Know, is diagnosed with cancer, prompting him to attempt reconciliation with his own estranged child, Claudia, played by Melora Walters, who numbs herself through drug addiction and transactional sex to suppress the memories of Jimmy's long-ago sex abuse, an offense he can't bring himself to acknowledge. While Jimmy suffers a breakdown during a taping of What Do Kids Know, which coincides with the decision of boy genius Stanley Spector, played by Jeremy Blackman, to finally defend himself against the abuse of the adults ostensibly caring for him, Claudia receives a visit from Officer Jim Curring, played by John C. Riley, summoned by a neighbor's noise complaint. Jim is immediately smitten with Claudia and asks her out, but their date is cut short by Claudia's attack of nerves, leaving Jim to drive home alone, stopping en route to apprehend Donnie Smith, played by William H. Macy, a former star contestant on Jimmy's show now reduced to stealing from his employer to afford cosmetic braces that he hopes will endear him to a studly bartender. This encounter prompts Jim to return to Claudia the morning after a climax that has seen both Earl and Jimmy die as frogs fall from the sky, newly resolved to prove the strength of his feelings for her. The reason I like him a lot as a filmmaker is like, I only sort of paid him into acting. Like all other sort of uh, aspects of filmmaking really fall away from me. Like I don't, notice them or pay attention to them. I think maybe even less than a civilian. Like I'm just, I'm an extraordinarily acting focused uh, mind in a, in a, as a viewer. And his movies are such a treat because they're like, every character is such a wild character challenge. And then he also gets the best actors to then meet that challenge. And um, that's true of all of his movies. But um, Magnolia has some of my favorites of those challenges. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, but then there's also like Melora, Melora Walters is so amazing in it. Um, I mean, everybody is so good in Phil Baker Hall. I mean, it's, it's uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman, it, his role is so thankless. Like you kind of like would almost forget about him. Like I just said, his great acting. 
Um, but he, yeah, he's so beautiful in the movie. The movie's awesome. And then it's like a million hours long. Yeah, but like, it's a testament to what cocaine can do. Same, we're drinking coffee on set now and it's just not, we're not making Magnolia. It's difficult to find an unequivocally positive review of Magnolia, but it's similarly difficult to find an unequivocally negative one. Critics seemed primarily baffled, lauding Anderson's ambition while staking claims at varying points along the spectrum between admiration and revulsion. Perhaps the most precisely ambivalent review came courtesy of David Denby. Quote, everyone has a favorite good-bad movie. Magnolia is a rare case of a great, terrible movie. End quote. At the most positive end of the spectrum, Peter Travers wrote, quote, Anderson takes risks that make you hopeful about the future of movies. End quote. At the most negative, Charles Taylor described the film as, quote, obvious and oblique, banal and still locked up inside Anderson's head. End quote. If any critic managed to best encapsulate the hyperkinetic, deliberately stylistically incoherent Magnolia, though, it must be Kenneth Turin, who described the film as, quote, drunk and disorderly on the pure joy of making movies, end quote. And I can always say it was such a transformative experience watching Magnolia that when I stepped out of the theater and was walking down the corridor out to the lobby and then to our car. I was passing all the posters for either movies that were coming out or about to come out or the cardboard promotional materials that were out in the lobby for movies that were out or about to come out. And I, I can't express how those movies looked so old fashioned and just I was like any movie after what I've seen now is uh, it, it is a true before and after point you know how people are like oh I saw 2001 it changed what I thought movies could be or, uh, or Star Wars for me it was Magnolia I went into the theater one person I came out of the theater a different person and a different movie goer but I went, like, once I finished watching Magnolia for the first time myself, I went in to see my parents, what they were doing, and I said, oh, I just watched this amazing film, it's called Magnolia, and it's about this, and this guy directed it. And they just said, would you want to watch it again? Which sounds like a really weird thing for them to say. And, but for some reason, I agreed. So we watched it again. Um, and it was amazing, because I feel like, I don't know if you get this, but sometimes when I'm watching something that I know is incredible and I will remember is incredible, sometimes when I'm watching it, I don't realize until the end how into it I am. So I've forgotten loads of details of it and I do want to rewatch it immediately. But <laughs> Magnolia is one of the only ones that I think I did rewatch immediately. So that was the first time, or I guess you could say the first two times. And then I think I rewatched it a couple of years after I graduated. It often plays at the Prince Charles Cinema in London, which is the greatest independent cinema in London, in the world maybe, debatable, probably true. And I went to see it there with some of my friends because I'd, I'd never seen it on the big screen. And I, I get this thing with certain films that I really love where when I come out of the cinema, I can't say anything, like my entire body <laughs> just tenses up and you know everyone's talking about it when they're really excited and I'm I'm so excited and I'm so overwhelmed that I can't say anything for about half an hour so I was just walking around <laughs> just 
just kind of just nodding while my friends were chatting about it. Um, and I don't think I've rewatched it since because I, I, uh, I'm tired, you know? <laughs> I feel like it takes a lot out of you in, in, in the very best way. Like I'll, I'll talk about it all the time at length through as much as possible, but actually rewatching it, I just find it just takes so much out of me. Um, but yeah, it's a very special one. The production of Magnolia might best be described as a boondoggle with the full ballooning scope captured in That Moment, Magnolia Diary. The documentary was clearly conceived to document the joyous creation of a passion project, but it ultimately traces the slow dissolution of Anderson's nerves and his collaborators' patience. As an already epic shooting schedule of 79 days bloats to 100, producer Daniel Lupi can be heard bemoaning late in That Moment, Magnolia Diary, quote, We've just spent a lot of money spent a lot of money, end quote. Indeed, the film was Anderson's most expensive to date at a reported budget of $37 million, and with a box office gross of just under $48.5 million, Magnolia remains the least profitable Anderson film to still end up in the black. Prior to Magnolia's release in December 1999, Lynn Hirschberg penned a lengthy profile for the New York Times Magazine in which she described Anderson as, quote, a brat and a genius, end quote, and went on to quote his desire to kickstart, quote, a revolution that's just not happening well enough or fast enough, end quote, and his complaint that, quote, world domination is very complicated, end quote. Anderson's persona was that of a young man flying high but primed for a crash. Given the box office underperformance, mixed critical reception, and meager awards showing, the film was nominated for three Oscars, Cruz for Best Supporting Actor, Amy Mann for Best Original Song, and Anderson for Best Original Screenplay, losing each, Anderson's relationship with New Line Cinema ended after the release of Magnolia. We'll be right back after this quick break. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For all its diffuse tangents and digressions, Magnolia is ultimately united by its concern with the failures of the mid-century patriarchal standard and the decades of rippling effects that culminated in the Clinton-era reassessment of gender norms. From this seismic reckoning with the sins of the father emerges what Joanne Clark Dillman describes as a tone of, quote, male hysteria, end quote. This term, reappropriated from its long-standing use as a disparagement of female emotionality, represents one primary way in which Magnolia circumvents typical modes of discussing and experiencing American masculinity. As Dillman writes, the film's characters, quote, expose the impossible contradictions of white male masculinity, 
with Anderson making use of classically feminized generic trappings, the emotional surfeits of melodrama and the prolonged Byzantine narrative of soap opera, to subvert expectations for stories of men struggling with what it means to be men. I mean, I, Tom Cruise is so awesome in Magnolia. Like, Tom Cruise is such an awesome actor, period. But, like, it's just the most amazing marriage of, like, wildly fun character and, like, wildly fun actor. Um, I guess now that I'm saying that, I guess a lot of his movies, I, I guess that's truly, I could have picked any movie of his, and that's what I like about it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, he's so good in this movie. Like, he's so good in this. head first with the skills that I will teach you at work and say no. no you will not control me no, no. you will not take my soul no. no you will not win this game because it is a game guys you want to think it's not huh you want to think it's not you go back to the schoolyard and you have that crush on big titted Mary Jane <laughs> respect the cock. Oh my god, I mean, what? And that's the thing, it's like really hard. I feel like truly great acting, there's nothing to say about it. And like people mistake that, I think. Like sometimes like they'll be like, like if, if you can talk about it a lot, it's not good, if that makes any sense. Like I think truly great acting is a magic trick that I can't, I don't know what happened and I don't know what is good about it. If Magnolia is a film defined by male hysteria, it is by no means an outlier in Anderson's filmography. Each of his first three films features young men going to hyperbolic lengths to demonstrate their clearly impotent bona fides. Early in Hard Eight, John cautions Sidney against any potential sexual advance by claiming to know, quote, three types of karate, jujitsu, aikido, and regular karate, end quote, a level of posturing somewhat undercut by the scene shortly thereafter in which John pauses to adjust his Velcro sneakers. John C. Riley brings a similar macho swagger to Boogie Nights, particularly the first meeting of Dirk and Reed, in which they affect nonchalance while attempting to one-up each other's weightlifting achievements. In either case, Anderson presents the central characters as preening, overgrown boys attempting to mask an overwhelming vulnerability. With Magnolia, Anderson turned his interest increasingly towards dyads, characters who function best as half of an embodied rhetorical argument. There are mirroring relationships between the repentant Earl and irredeemable Jimmy, as well as Donnie Smith's faded star and Stanley Spector's rising one. As his scope has narrowed, the ensembles of Boogie Nights and Magnolia later giving way to stories of single protagonists, Anderson has come to focus on more directly oppositional male pairings, the confrontation between the nebbish Barry Egan and boorish Dean Trumbull, the rivalry between rapacious Daniel Plainview and supercilious Eli Sunday, the passive-aggressive dance between bestial Freddie Quell and cerebral Lancaster Dodd, and the uneasy alliance between the free spirit Doc Sportello and the government operative Bigfoot Bjornsson, 
Among the distinct breaks with precedent represented by Phantom Thread, there he shifts this dyadic model to examine modes of femininity embodied by Alma and Cyril. For the most part, these battles of wills resolve not by upholding one mode of gender identity as superior to the other, but rather by demonstrating either the futility of the battle for dominance or the necessity of establishing new gender roles. So there are two scenes and one line reading, which I always come back to when I think about the most striking mag moments in Magnolia for me. The scenes, the scenes I feel like are quite obvious, maybe, but I think they're obvious because Magnolia is such a strange and just ridiculous film that it, it it's only obvious once you're so deep within this world that you're like, of course, anything, like, of course, this would happen. So the first one is when um, the entire cast just weirdly ends up singing along to Wise Up by Amy Mann. how that happened i want to know what anyone's response was the very first time that pta might have presented this to literally anyone outside of his brain and said okay guys what's going to happen it's all of these people who don't know each other and aren't in the same room and who are not in a movie musical and who are not in a family friendly fantasy film they're just all going to sing along to this song and everyone being like yeah cool um yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable because I just feel like I, I'm a big fan of movie musicals, but um, like this is not that, it's not that in any way at all. And it's just so emotional and very striking and very strange uh, and very subtle somehow, even though they're doing all of that. So yeah, that's incredible. And another, and the second scene that I really love is again a very strange one is the moment when the frogs start falling from the sky I love the frog scene more for the narration that's kind of happening around it because it kind of feels like to me for a lot of the film the narration is really building this thing it's a really like just trust me and go with it this is going to make sense kind of way and I kind of wasn't sure where it was going for ages and then and then frogs fall from the sky and suddenly it makes everything make sense and so I can kind of feel a little sense of uh, I feel like the narrator's really content at that point, or there's just a little bit of relief in his voice where he's like, you see, this is what I mean. Like, don't worry, frogs will fall from the sky and then you'll have the answers. And like, you know, if frogs fall from the sky in any other context, I feel like you'd that would be when you'd start panicking. But here you're like, oh, thank God, this is 
this is what was supposed to happen. I guess so obviously like the frogs are like an idea you have when you're writing when you're like does that ruin does that like just betray the entire tone and then you almost never go with it but you ever you have those ideas when you're writing and then he actually did it and it works so beautifully and it somehow feels like it's all been leading to this and then my favorite line reading is from William H Macy's character who is my favorite one in the film he played this former um child star boy genius kid who was on kids show um on quiz shows uh called donnie smith and he's just got this bit where he just goes my name is donnie smith and i have lots of love to give it kind of comes a little bit out of nowhere uh, or it's just this it's such a perfect little catchphrase which again feels so at odds with the genre of the film and the way the script is working and the way everyone talks to each other that it just I don't know it's just so beautiful and I guess you're supposed to maybe laugh at him a little bit or feel sorry for him but I just think it's so sincerely heart shattering and I just want to reach into the screen and just like reach out to everyone and I'm just like oh, it's so true and yeah I think it's perfect. Uh, at the American Cinematheque, like 10, 12 years ago, I got to see a, a personal print that Paul Thomas Anderson brought to the uh, Egyptian theater. And it was the most beautiful print I had ever seen. It was just like the warmest warms and the coldest cools. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, when I sat there in the theater and I watched it, um, you know, from the beginning, to the middle, to the end. It was this experience with the audience where you could feel people kind of peeling off in their experience. You know, oh, this prologue is too strange. What's it connecting to this movie I'm about to watch? Or they're singing now? And then when the frogs came down, it was just like this culmination of seeing somebody's vision of doing entirely not just what they want to do, but the thrill of getting to do what they want to do. It, it, it's just one of those movies to this day that I'm so emotionally connected to that it began in the audience that night I saw it on Friday night. It was like, oh, I'm sorry, you ain't getting this? That's your problem because I am hooked in. And I could hear people like me, 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 when they started singing along. And when the frogs came down, it was just, it was a glorious moment of, you know, and I'm a full on Weezer listening, Nirvana loving, like emoed out feelings are feelings, kid. And I'd grown up, you know, I basically, you know, born in 81, probably logged on around 88, 89. From the mid eighties to the end of the nineties or whatever, I was born and raised in irony and it began with good intentions. I know that David Letterman was trying to poke through some phoniness or something and, and get it something real. But by the point I was 18 years old, Sprite commercials were being cynical. And, and artists were put in this position seemingly where to wear your heart on your sleeve was to be 
sentimental and mawkish and to be like ridiculed. And if you go back and watch movies from the 90s, independent cinema particularly, it's all just like, let's laugh at the normies. And that's fine. It's funny. But a lot of it's kind of... But this movie is so sincere and has such a deep sense of empathy that... To experience that after 15 years of entertainment that was so scared to be vulnerable, that was just the ultimate um, vision. And to see a three-hour movie that wasn't about a drama that's about the against the backdrop of the American Revolution. <laughs> and it's bringing epicness to the quotidian. It's like going to the pharmacy, having a crush, having to go pee but not being able to get to the bathroom and bringing all that stuff to the level of an epic. It, it is such a reish and, and, and then bring to it such a, such a devotion to empathy. Oh my gosh, what a tonic it was at the, <laughs> at the end of the 90s and to this day. There's really nothing like that level of sincerity. With Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson closed the book on one phase of his career, the era of hyperkinetic, hyperverbal, hyperactive filmmaking that defined his emergence onto the Hollywood stage. For as much as I adore the string of repressed, enigmatic films that followed, it's hard not to miss something of this brash and brazen 20-something filmmaker who wanted to create epics as though his time was already running out. What would it look like if the Paul Thomas Anderson of today even tried to make something as overstuffed and melodramatic as Magnolia? Would it have been possible to maintain this storytelling pace into his 50s? Could you recapture this kind of cinematic mania without the performance enhancement of cocaine? These are the questions Magnolia leaves me with today. But more importantly, Magnolia leaves me with as raw and emotionally open a film as any director has ever made. This is a film of sound and fury, and while it represents a young artist grasping for the brass ring of masterpiece status with as much force as possible, it also represents a young artist putting his own pain and confusion onto the screen and performing the empathetic act of trying to channel the pain and confusion of the world around him. It's a movie filled to bursting, and if it does sometimes feel like the wheels are going to come off, that's all part of the thrill of this particular emotional roller coaster. It's not for everyone, but it's a movie that refuses to stop until you wise up. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.